my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your demon in the flesh, Josh Baker, cover six new to me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode is all about pretend death, big bads, and stage fright. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to remind you listeners that you can send questions or qualms to blankisthekiller at gmail.com. Now let's band together and discuss how to defeat a Superboy and some spooky movies. Number 1, Braid, 2018, directed by Mitzi Perini. Two drug dealers, Petula and Tilda, have to run from the cops and leave behind all their drugs. They need money quick, so they go to their childhood friend Daphne's house to steal some. Daphne is crazy and makes Tilda pretend to be her daughter and Petula pretend to be a doctor. Daphne says she poisoned her grandparents. A policeman comes looking for Petula and Tilda, whom Daphne has been torturing. He's sent away but comes back to find Petula and Tilda about to kill Daphne. Daphne and Tilda murder him. Daphne makes Petula hit the corpse. The trio buries the policeman. Petula finds a diary that seems to reveal that everything that has happened has been happening over and over and is make-believe? Daphne and Tilda might be the killers. Who knows? Daphne might have poisoned her grandparents and murdered a policeman along with Tilda, but maybe all of that was fantasized shenanigans. Are Petula and Tilda even real? Is everything shown when Daphne is grown up in her head? Did Braid leave me feeling frustrated? I can answer that last question. Yes, I was frustrated. I hate any time an entire story could have just been in a character's head. The whole thing could have been shared psychosis. One thing I didn't cover in the plot section is flashbacks to when the trio were kids. They were in a treehouse and Daphne wanted to play make-believe where she was the mom, Tilda was the daughter, and Petula was the doctor. Tilda didn't want to play Daphne's dumb pretend game, which led to a little tussle and Daphne falling out of the treehouse they were hanging out in. The fall left her barren and probably gave her brain damage. Now, maybe everything that happens is just a fantasy Daphne has while in a coma. I don't know. The plot is completely nonsensical. All the characters are unreliable narrators, so who knows what's real. At one point, Daphne takes a razor blade to both Petula and Tilda. Petula gets the old, you want to know how I got these scars Joker look, and Tilda is sliced under her eyes, which makes it look kind of like she's crying blood. Once the trio buries the police officer, these scars disappear. It's implied that a bunch of time has passed at the house, but time wouldn't heal those scars. I can't make sense of the plot, and barely anyone has seen this movie. There are no satisfying answers to be found at this time. 
So besides the incoherent plot, how's the rest of Braid? Not bad. I would easily recommend this movie if it just went off the rails instead of having the rails completely disappear. It's called Braid because it's about three intertwined girls. The cinematography and costume design are fantastic. There are a ton of beautiful shots and fashion. Todd Van Hazel is the cinematographer for Braid and it looks like this was only his second feature. Shots are filled with vibrant color. There's a tripping scene where the color palette changes to purples, greens, and blues, which looks amazing. The acting is good, given all the characters act at least a little insane. Daphne is played by Madeline Brewer, who also starred in Cam. So far, I've dug her in everything she's been in. She definitely gives the strongest performance. Sarah Hay is Tilda, and Amogen Waterhouse is Petula, and they're also good. There isn't a ton of gore in Braid, but there is a ton of blood splatter during the policeman's death. The amount of blood from the girls beating the body to a pulp is over the top and insane in a good way. You partially see Daphne cut into Petula's cheeks with a razor blade, but the actual cutting isn't super visible. Still, the small bits of gore looked okay, even though the cuts that the girls received on their faces should have bled way more. I'd say up until the policeman is buried, I was definitely going to recommend this movie. After the burial, things end up too abstract for me. As a whole, I don't recommend Braid. Pre-burial Braid is an interesting thriller. Once the policeman is dead in the ground, so is the movie. It's confusing and pointless after that point. If you're looking for a visual experience with an incoherent plot, I give this a light recommendation. For anyone looking for a cohesive movie that's entertaining all the way through, Braid isn't that. Number 2, Brightburn, 2019, directed by David Yoroveski. A couple who have been wanting a kid find a crash-landed spaceship with the baby inside. They name the child Brandon and raise him. Around Brandon's 12th birthday, his spaceship activates and transmits a message in an alien language which awakens something inside him. The message translates to take the world. Brandon finds out he has powers like Superman. Brandon starts killing people. His dad, realizing that he must be stopped, tries to kill him with a gun which has no effect. Brandon's mom then attempts to kill him with part of his spaceship since she knows it can cut him. She fails, and Brandon kills her. Brandon continues his path of destruction. Brandon is the killer. Before I dive into this movie, I want to clear up some confusion. A lot of people seem to think this is a James Gunn movie. It's not. James Gunn produced the movie. It's a common Hollywood tactic to plaster a producer's name all over a movie to make people think that person had a bigger hand in whatever movie is being advertised. Sure, sometimes producers can be pretty hands-on, but that's a rarity. Example, remember that movie Mortal Engines? Remember hearing something about Peter Jackson being involved? He was just a producer. Same with James Gunn and Brightburn. He probably helped out his brother and cousin, Brian Gunn and Mark Gunn, a tiny bit, but a producer normally just brings people together and throws money at a project. I know that you all already know this, but I've seen some reviews calling out James Gunn in particular when he only produced. Now, the director, David Yoroveski, makes it sound like James Gunn helped quite a bit, but James Gunn didn't write or direct. 
I was pretty hyped for a slasher movie that put an evil kid Superman in the slasher role. Did Brightburn live up to my hype? Nah. Is it worth seeing? Probably. There were multiple points during my viewing of Brightburn where I just felt bored. I want to say that's partially due to the production design. Almost all of the set pieces are either a boring dark road, house, or barn. The only memorable location in the whole movie is a diner because at least that spot had some lighting. I'd say the cinematography is another reason why I found myself losing interest. From what I can remember, almost every shot is a plain static shot. I'm racking my brain for an interesting shot and I can't really come up with any besides maybe some of the shots of Brandon floating. Brightburn is only an hour and 30 minutes, but it felt like two hours. The acting in the movie isn't incredible. Elizabeth Banks plays the mom and is the best of the adults. Most of the other actors that get a lot of screen time are known for portraying side characters in TV shows. David Denman, who's known for playing Roy in The Office, is the dad. And Matt Jones, who's known for playing Badger in Breaking Bad, is the uncle. They aren't amazing in this. Jackson A. Dunn plays Brandon. He worked as the creepy kid. I don't think it's hard to act like a creepy kid though. You just need a nice blank stare and a creepy face. Dunn checked both of those boxes. Fun fact, he also played 12 year old Scott Lang in Endgame. That's little Ant-Man for you non-nerds. I've been a bit of a Debbie Downer, so let me talk about what Brightburn does right, the kills. If all you want from this movie is some neat Superman power kills, Brightburn has you covered. Every kill in this movie, even the simple ones, are fantastic. I'm going to go through most of them, so if you want to be surprised, skip ahead about a minute and 30 seconds to miss spoilers. On to the zany deaths. One of my favorites is probably the simplest kill in the movie. Brandon flies through a sheriff. Yep, the impact isn't even shown on screen. Somehow that makes it better. The camera pans away from the poor soul for a split second and whoosh. Sheriff is now goop. Out of all the deaths in the movie, if I had to be murdered by evil Superboy, that's the one I'd choose. Brandon kills his uncle in jaw-dropping fashion. Brandon picks up his uncle's Ford Bronco with said uncle inside and drops it causing the uncle's face to get a little too acquainted with the steering wheel. Trend alert, jaw horror has been popping up a lot recently. John Wick 3 has a destroyed jaw, as does Brightburn. The jaw stuff really hits home for me. You can't have evil Superboy without an eye laser beam kill, which is great. Intense eye horror makes an appearance. I feel like terrible things happening to eyes is just expected in horror these days. People are flown through things. As we all know, fleshy humans don't fare well when flying through solid objects. Oh, and the traitorous mom who attempts to kill Brandon? Brandon flies her up above the clouds and drops her like a sack of moldy tangerines. Is Brightburn a perfect movie? Not at all. Did it drag in multiple places? You better believe it. Do I recommend checking it out? Yes? If you're interested at all in seeing a Superboy go on a murderous rampage, you'll probably find some enjoyment with this one. Number 3, The Perfection. 2018, directed by Richard Shepard. A cellist named Charlotte goes to see Anton and Paloma, the people who taught her, and meets their new star, Lizzie. Charlotte drugs Lizzie with hallucinogens and goads her into cutting off her own hand. 
Charlotte does this to help Lizzie escape Anton and his school's clutches. The school is run by a bunch of rapists. Lizzie brings Charlotte to the school and together they kill everyone except Anton, who they attack. One of Charlotte's arms is destroyed in the attack. The girl's best Anton cut off his arms and legs and so his eyes and mouth shut. The girls then play a cello together with their remaining limbs. No one is the killer. As I'm pretty sure I've stated before, you don't get added to the killer list for exacting warranted revenge. I don't normally watch rape revenge movies, but when I do, they are advertised as a psychological horror thriller and only have random rape revenge thrown in at the last second for no real reason other than shock value. The perfection, more like the imperfection. What do you get when someone watches Martyrs once and vaguely remembers Tanya Harding? The perfection. We're going into full rant mode, so before I unleash the beast, I will say that there is some neat production design, and the movie's premise isn't all that terrible. Everything else is, though. Let's start off this rant with the CGI. Lizzie has to see something while tripping to make her cut off her own hand, so why not have horrible CGI bugs? Josh, she's hallucinating. Maybe her mind decided to make the bugs look like bad CGI. Yeah. No. Using real bugs in your horror movie really ups the ante. If you're going to have a scene that includes bugs, you best be prepared to use at least a few real ones. They don't even use real maggots when Lizzie thinks she sees them in her throw up. Come on! Since I'm talking about CGI, there's only really one intense gore shot in The Perfection, and it uses CGI. Anton stabs Charlotte through the middle of her arm and drags the blade along her entire forearm. Practical effects would have made this amazingly better. It was an awesome idea with poor CGI execution. I mentioned that Anton is turned into a living torso. None of this is shown on screen, which is fine. We also don't see Charlotte and Lizzie's initial attack on Anton. Instead, a camera is attached to Charlotte, pointing at her face for most of the attack. That kind of reversed POV is a neat idea, but it didn't work for me here. The acting in this movie is abysmal. I don't want to place the blame solely on the actors, though, given that the dialogue is almost always the same line repeated over and over ad infinitum. The dialogue is baffling. Lizzie curses every two seconds, which just feels forced and fake. My biggest issue with the perfection is the movie's hand-holding. I guess whoever made this movie thought only complete morons would watch it, given how much unnecessary information we are force-fed. It's painfully obvious that Charlotte drugged Lizzie with some hallucinogenic drug. Right after Lizzie chops her own hand off, the movie rewinds, it literally rewinds to show us exactly how Charlotte drugged Lizzie and where Charlotte found the meat cleaver she hands to Lizzie. Thank you, The Perfection. You know me. I'm a big, big stupid head. I could have never pieced together how Charlotte drugged Lizzie without you shoving the events in my face. Like some sort of whipped cream pie-wielding clown. That reminds me of a story. When I was a boy, I went to Joe's Crab Shack for my birthday with some friends. Weird choice of venue, I know. A waiter brought a porcelain gravy boat filled with whipped cream to the table and said there was a cherry at the bottom. 
The waiter wanted me to dive face first into this whipped cream to find the cherry sans hands to win a prize. I'm no stupid idiot, so I said no dice. My friend, a stupid idiot, said he'd do it. He dove face first towards the white stuff as the waiter pushed the hard dish into his face, leaving my friend not only with whipped cream all over his dumb face, but also a bloody nose. That's how you make pink whipped cream. There was, obviously, no cherry. The whipped cream with no cherry is kind of like a metaphor for the perfection. I was promised a cherry, a decent psychological horror movie, and instead got a bloody nose, some garbage shock value. Since the perfection thinks its audience is made up of complete stupid idiots, that rewind isn't the only one. There's another rewind that shows us Lizzie joining up with Charlotte post hand removal because we the audience are way too stupid to figure out why they would join forces against the musical rapist cult. Don't even get me started on how stupid it is that Charlotte decided the only way to make Lizzie realize the musical rapist cult was bad was to have her chop off her own hand. Obviously, Lizzie was totally cool with everything until the school told her she couldn't live there anymore. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Not the gang rape of children. While I'm ranting, the soundtrack sucks too. Think of an overused dramatic classical song. Did you think of Mozart's Requiem? That song plays at the end of The Perfection. It's cut off by a terrible rap song, but even though that shows some self-awareness, the song choices were still bad. The movie is littered with lame songs that don't fit. Multiple scenes drag on forever, which makes this movie feel way longer than it should. There were multiple parts where I was thinking to myself, I get it, move on already only for the movie to continue with a drawn-out scene. I don't recommend The Perfection. It's an okay premise with terrible execution. If you want to watch a mediocre shock movie, just watch Martyrs instead. I probably wouldn't have hated The Perfection nearly as much as I did if the creators had removed the pointless, condescending rewinds and shortened a few scenes. The dialogue and acting would still be awful, but a little more editing could at least save the movie from being the complete trash it is. Number 4, Stage Fright, originally titled Deliria, 1987, directed by Michele Soavi. Actors are rehearsing a stage play about a killer who wears an owl mask. One of the leads, Alicia, has a hurt ankle. A friend sneaks her away to a psychiatric hospital nearby to find a doctor to help with the pain. A serial killer named Irving Wallace, who's at the hospital, murders an orderly and escapes in the girls' car. The killer hides in the back seat and kills the friend after Alicia goes back inside to the rehearsal. The police are called, don't find the killer, but say they searched everywhere. Peter, the director, realizes that the play can ride the publicity from the murder and tells a girl to lock everyone in and hide the keys so they can rehearse more. That girl is murdered on stage by the killer, who's now wearing the owl mask. The killer starts murdering everyone. Peter accidentally kills an actor the killer tied up. Alicia ends up the only person still alive. She finds a key to the main door, lights the killer on fire, escapes, and alerts the police. The next day she goes back to the rehearsal space to look for a watch she lost. She's let in by a guy named Willie. 
The killer is still alive. Willie shoots him in the head. Alicia's watch ends up broken. She leaves the building and the killer, who's on the ground with a bullet in his head, smiles. Irving, Wallace, and Peter are the killers. I know Peter didn't realize he was killing an innocent person, but tough luck, Petey. Michele Suave directed Stage Fright. He's worked a lot with Dario Argento. Suave acted in Demons and directed what were originally written to be the third and fourth installments in the Demon series, The Church and The Sect. He also directed Cemetery Man. I plan on getting to all three of those films in the near future. Next episode will have a heavy helping of Italian horror, so expect those films and one or two from Lucio Fulci. This section is about stage fright, also known as stage fright without a space in between the two words, stage fright Aquarius, just Aquarius, and bloody bird. I love the design of the movie Slasher. The owl head is absolutely ridiculous in the best possible way. Who doesn't want to watch a man wearing a giant owl mascot style head murder people in various ways? The kills in stage fright are surprisingly varied, a syringe, Pickaxe, knife, drill, chainsaw, and axe are all used for nefarious purposes. The gore is practical and looks amazing. One chainsaw wound in particular looked especially yeesh-inducing. The standout kill has to be the one involving a woman who's pulled through a floor. The killer grabs her through some moldy floorboards. Two guys try to pull her up only to end up with half of her body flying up and landing on her boyfriend. It's a fantastic kill. The camera work in Stage Fright is awesome. There is a lot of neat camera movement. Focused is used to great effect, especially in the scenes with the key to the door. There are also a bunch of shots with unique angles. There's vibrant color and an amazing score that's filled with bangers. Simon Boswell and Stefano Menetti did a perfect job with the score, which includes synth, guitar, and sax. It's so good I listened to it by itself. The acting isn't incredible, which I feel is expected for an Italian slasher. Barbara Capisti plays Alicia. I liked her in this. She's also in Cemetery Man and The Church, so I'll be seeing more from her in the near future. In Stage Fright, some characters are horribly dubbed, which I found endearing. Peter, the director, starts off as a complete jerk, but he's shown to be empathetic later on in the movie when he apologizes to Alicia. He then leads a mission to find a skeleton key, which I didn't expect. Normally, this character would be one-dimensional and completely unlikable. When it comes down to either him or another girl dying, he does toss the girl at the chainsaw-wielding owl killer, so he's not perfect. He did also murder a dude that was tied up, but that was an accident. At one point, the rehearsing continues and the killer ends up on stage. I was really worried that he'd make a fool of himself since he obviously didn't know the choreography. Luckily, all he had to do in that scene is murder a girl, which he's great at. There is a scene where everyone is arming themselves with what they find in the work area. One girl chooses a rock as her weapon. To no one's surprise, she dies. We're told in the past Irving Wallace nailed a girl to the ground and cut her into pieces, 
which is awful and all, but at least he doesn't kill a cat named Lucifer who hangs around the rehearsal space. The guy named Willie who shoots the killer at the end berates Alicia for not knowing how to use a gun right after all the trauma she just went through. Why you gotta be a meanie, Willie? Stage fright does drag a bit when Alicia is the only one still alive in the rehearsal space for the last 20-ish minutes, but the movie is still a lot of fun. If you like slashers, Stage Fright is a must-watch. It's soaked in style and blood. Number 5, Stage Fright, 2014, directed by Jerome Sable. After opening night of The Haunting of the Opera, the star, Kylie, is murdered. Ten years later, her daughter Camilla and her son Buddy are working at a summer camp for theater kids run by Kylie's old boyfriend Roger, who took in the kids. The camp is putting on the haunting of the opera. Camilla tries out and is chosen to star in the same role that her mother played. A masked killer who hates theater starts murdering people. Buddy is the masked killer. Buddy reveals that Roger killed Kylie after he found out she was cheating on him. Roger kills Buddy and is taken out by Camilla. Camilla ends up on Broadway and hallucinates Buddy jumping through her mirror. Roger and Buddy are the killers. Stage Fright is a Canadian musical horror slasher that deserves to be seen. I look at a lot of horror stuff and I don't recall ever seeing this film brought up. Well, maybe it popped up once, but Stage Fright should be popping up whenever people ask for lesser known horror recommendations. Why? Funny musical numbers, check. The always fantastic meatloaf, check. Intense practical gore, check. Humor that actually lands, check. Great production design, check. A metal-loving killer who hates theater kids, check. I had a ton of fun watching this movie. It was weird hearing Meatloaf sing without rocking guitars and piano behind him, though, if I'm being honest. That's my biggest gripe. Meatloaf's songs needed more rock, guitar, and piano. I think Bat Out of Hell is one of the best albums of all time. Check that out if you've never heard it. That's enough about Meatloaf for the time being. Let's talk about the kills, shall we? The first kill of the movie is an amazing knife kill. Kylie, played by Minnie Driver, is stabbed to death. This kill is now my gold standard for brutal knife kills. Kylie is stabbed multiple times with visceral practical effects behind every stab. This isn't the only good gore in this movie. A sleazy director has to rip off the front part of his foot after it's nailed to the ground by a fallen stage light. I've never seen that kind of foot destruction in a horror movie. At least I don't think I have. There aren't a ton of kills in stage fright, but the ones included are great. Meatloaf was the OG stabber in the movie, so after Buddy puts him on blast, Meatloaf goes all stab crazy again on him. Meatloaf is ended by a handheld power saw to the gut, which is nice and practical, with a good amount of blood and an intestinal garnish. It is a little silly that Meatloaf is revealed to be the OG killer, given that his build is thicker than the build of the masked man we originally see kill the mom. You don't cheat on Meatloaf, mom. The humor in this movie really landed for me. 
There's a big musical number when all the nerdy kids arrive at the theater camp that is hilarious. Buddy is fantastic as the high-voiced, metal-loving killer. He gave me King Diamond vibes at times. During almost every kill, he delivers a cheese-filled one-liner in his funny killer voice. The mask he wears is a scratched-up kabuki mask, which looks great. It was pretty obvious that Buddy was the metalhead killer, since you see him wield soup can lids as weapons early on. Buddy and Camilla worked in the kitchen at the camp. I like the creativity of the soup can lid blades. Sure, they looked and functioned just like plain old saw blades, but knowing they were soup can lids made them much more flavorful. All the acting in Stage Fright is decent. Camilla is played by Ally McDonald, and she was great as the final girl. I wish there were a few more kills and maybe one additional music number, but Stage Fright is definitely one of the most entertaining movies I've seen this year. It even has an original song that calls out the audience for possibly pirating the movie played over the credits. Watch this movie unless you're some kind of musical-hating monster. Number 6, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, 2019, directed by Michael Doherty. Godzilla hasn't been seen in a while. Mothra is born. Ghidorah is awoken. Ghidorah and Godzilla fight, and some dumb humans shoot a new missile called the Oxygen Destroyer at the two titans. This incapacitates Godzilla. Rodan and a bunch of new rando titans wake up after Ghidorah yells. The idiot humans find Godzilla recuperating at his house and use a nuke to speed up Godzilla's recovery, also destroying Godzilla's house. Godzilla fights Ghidorah. Rodan and Mothra show up and fight. Mothra knocks out Rodan. Ghidorah kills Mothra. Godzilla goes nuclear and destroys Ghidorah. Godzilla takes his place as king of the monsters. All the titans, Vera Farmiga, Tywin Lannister, and his soldiers are the killers. The human element is so poorly done and uninteresting that I will not be using any of the actors in movie names. I'm not sure who exactly wrote the dialogue in this movie. Michael Doherty and Zack Shields are credited as writing the screenplay. The dialogue in this movie is spectacularly terrible. None of the jokes land. Not a single one. I don't like using this word, but the dialogue is cringy. Don't get me wrong. I know that no one watches a Godzilla movie to focus on the humans, but holy moly, is everything the humans do in this movie painfully boring, cringy, and poorly acted. The only decent actors in this are Vera Farmiga and Ken Watanabe. Ken Watanabe should have been the lead, but instead, a hard-boiled egg named Kyle Chandler is the human star for some reason. I have never liked Kyle Chandler and anything he's done. He's not a leading man. He's a random soldier dude with a bit part at best. He has an 8 in charisma. That means he has a negative 1 modifier. He's boring and makes you feel mildly uncomfortable. This is a Godzilla movie. Since Ken Watanabe can't be the lead for some reason, lean into the camp and get someone like Bruce Campbell. Allegedly, Doherty based one of the humans, a scientist named Rick. 
a scientist named Rick on Rick Sanchez. Yeah, you know, from Rick and Morty. It doesn't work. That character is played by Billy Madison's Bradley Whitford. Again, if they leaned further into camp, it could have worked. One last thing before I talk about good stuff. Vera Farmiga is basically Thanos. She works with Tywin Lannister to raise all the Titans in order for them to take over the world and stop humans from ruining the planet with pollution and overpopulation. The humans organization is called Monarch. I'm only bringing this up because whenever they said the name, all I could think about was the mighty Monarch. I, I apologize for that. I, I had to do it and I know it was terrible. When it comes to showing monsters on the big screen, Godzilla King of the Monsters excels. All of the Titans, even the new randos, look incredible. Of the newbies, I really liked Gorilla Mammoth. The other newbies didn't do much for me, but I can't wait for Gormith to throw down in the future. Best monster moments include Rodan pressing Z or R twice to barrel roll and take down a bunch of dumb fighter jets. Ghidorah bringing a raging storm wherever he flies, Mothra's beauty that literally shines down from the heavens, and the way Godzilla ends Ghidorah. I don't want to fully spoil it, so all I'll say is the coup de gras gave me some real Lady and the Tramp vibes. Godzilla loves him some showboating. I love practical effects, but I have to give it to the visual effects team on this movie. The CGI monsters look great. Even though the humans are super lame, I did like their big stealth bomber jet and underwater lair. Godzilla King of the Monsters delivers on Titan on Titan action, but heavily suffers from long, monsterless stretches of some of the worst acting and dialogue I have ever seen in a blockbuster. This installment is exponentially better than the snooze fest that is Godzilla 2014. I recommend Godzilla, King of the Monsters, but be prepared for a lot of boredom whenever Titans aren't on screen. Way too much screen time is wasted on dull human drama and jokes that don't land in any way. I don't remember the writing in Doherty's other films, Trick or Treat and Krampus, being terrible, so I don't know what happened here. One last gripe. There's a part where a person goes out into a high radiation area and doesn't have their skin melt off for some reason. If Chernobyl taught me anything, it's that the person who goes on the suicide mission should have turned into a liquid. Number 7, Blood Drive, 2017, created by James Rowland. So I haven't watched a lot of this sci-fi original show that was cancelled after one season, but I have seen two episodes which is enough to dive in with some initial impressions. It's a fun show. A great show? <laughs> no. A fun show? I already said it was. Blood Drive is a show about cars that run on blood and the world they drive in. Why do they run on blood? Gasoline is crazy expensive. From what I can gather, each episode encapsulates some sort of grindhouse trope. In the first two episodes, there have been murders, cannibals, cyborgs, and cars that run on blood. A girl named Grace who's looking for her sister and a cop named Arthur end up an unlikely duo in a race across the United States fittingly titled Blood Drive. 
This show shines when it comes to ridiculous practical gore and effects. Multiple practically made blood-craving car engines have been shown, and every single one of them looks awesome. For a show that was technically on a normal cable network, there is a ton of gore. A weirdo named Julian Slink is in charge of Blood Drive, and at one point he literally destroys a man's head with a briefcase. It's hilarious and gruesome. People lose limbs and blood flies everywhere whenever someone is fed to a car. Only two of the characters so far are decently acted. Julian Slink is played by Colin Cunningham, who portrays the eccentric oddball quite well. The cop named Arthur is played by Alan Richson. I find Alan Richson to be a great comedic actor. He's amazing as the macho douchebag Thad Castle in Blue Mountain State. So far I've liked him in Blood Drive, but for some reason they have him playing more of the straight man instead of an over-the-top, gets-things-done-anyway-possible action cop, which would work better given his comedic strengths and the show's premise. I'm assuming he'll be funnier as the season continues. Since Blood Drive is an homage to Grindhouse, I wish the color in the show was more grimy and muted. I don't think a modern-day bright yellow sports car really fits in a Grindhouse show, and one makes an appearance in the very first episode. Somehow, the Prius in Blood Drive fits just fine. A Prius that runs on blood. That's cute. A lot of the humor in the show lands, but some of the jokes are total duds. I'm interested in seeing more of Blood Drive, but the first two episodes didn't exactly glue me to the TV. The show is far from perfect, but it's been fun so far. I'll let all you know my final impressions once I get around to finishing it. Thanks for listening to Blank is the Killer 46. Pretend Death, Big Bads, and Stage Fright. If you dug this episode, leave a rating on iTunes. Want to recommend a movie? Ask me a question? Correct me or argue why I'm wrong about a movie being bad or good? Send an email to blankisthekiller at gmail.com. Check out other podcasts on the Sticker Fridge Network like Director Showdown or Domcast. Big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website. The next episode of Blank is the Killer will grace you with its presence on June 16th. That episode will be filled with Italian horror unless I'm a dirty liar, which is totally possible. In case anyone is curious, I don't plan on checking out Ma, given how much the trailers gave away. If you've seen it and think I should see it, let me know. Until then, make sure to be stupidly nice to anyone that shows even an inkling of superhuman powers.